Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is September the 12th, 2022, a Monday afternoon. Over the weekend, I saw a great movie called Memoria featuring Tilda Swinton. Uh, and part of the movie is about a man who couldn't lose his memory. He remembered everything. And it was a form of punishment. In many ways, I think the film, or the, at least the character in the movie, is built off a character in a short story by uh, Borges, uh, Funes the Memorius. Uh, we are talking memory today with one of the great neuroscientists in the world, uh, Lisa Genova. She's a best-selling author. She teaches neuroscience at Harvard University. And I'm thrilled and honored to have Lisa on the show today. She's talking to us from near Boston. Lisa, have you seen Memoria yet? I have not seen it yet, but it sounds fascinating. And you know, it reminds me there are there are people in this world who have something called highly superior autobiographical memory. These folks can remember everything that happened in their lives every single day in great detail. And some of them, it, for some of them, it's a superpower, and for others, it feels like a curse. Yeah, it is a a, a curse. I mean, wasn't there a Russian who was cursed with this, and 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 there have been a series of books written about him. Yes, his name was Solomon Sharevsky, and his nickname was the man who could not forget. And he was overburdened with remembering too much detail. So he could memorize mathematical equations that he didn't understand. He could memorize poems and languages he didn't speak, and he never forgot any of it. And so it was tough to, there was too much noise, right? So he couldn't pull out the, the signal of what's important it turns out our human brains are designed to remember what's meaningful. And if you remember everything, it's it's pretty tough to function. Lisa, the subtitle of your book is The Science of Memory and the Art of Forgetting. Why is memory a science and forgetting an art? Well, they're both actually both. We know more about the science of memory than we do about the science of forgetting. I think because for so long, it's been assumed that forgetting is a problem, that forgetting is maybe a pathology or something to fix. But in fact, as you alluded to in the very start of this interview, we need to forget in order for our memory to function properly. Me human memory is actually a balancing act between what we remember and what we forget. And it's, a, it's the finely orchestrated balance of those two things that allows us to function and be happy and have a sense of self and a life narrative. Uh, Lisa, in the reviews of the book, a lot of the reviewers have touched on the idea that many of us fear that losing our memory indicates um, some sort of descent into Alzheimer's, but if anything, the reverse might be true. You're arguing that um, forgetting actually reflects a healthy rather than unhealthy brain. Is that fair? To an extent, to some extent, sure. And I'm also, much of the book is spent talking about that most of what we forget every day is actually normal and not a sign of pathology, not a, a sign of impending Alzheimer's. And yet most people don't know how their memory works and they have a really horrible relationship with their memory. So every time people 
walk into a room and can't remember why they're in there or they forget their Netflix password or can't remember where they put their glasses or their phone. They go into this spiral of shame and panic and blame and oh my God, I have the worst memory and oh my God, I, I'm probably gonna get Alzheimer's, especially after a certain age. And, and yet what people don't understand is that our brains aren't designed to remember these things. We're not designed to remember people's names. We're not designed to remember what happened yesterday unless it was meaningful, emotional, surprising, new, or we practiced it. So we don't remember most of our own lives and people don't actually stop to think about that. So forgetting is important. We lose what's routine and predictable and inconsequential, which turns out to be most of what we do. And we remember the salient, the meaningful, the surprising, the, oh, vacations, weddings, you know, the first kiss, you remember those and we lose. We don't remember the 12th kiss. You remember the, the, the new ones, the things that surprise us, that evoke some big emotion. Lisa, do you think what we remember and forget reflects what we want to remember and forget, the first versus the 12th kiss? I mean, presumably, for some people, that 12th kiss was the first kiss and they forget the first 11. It can be. So, you know, you've hit on something here. So what is meaningful? What is most emotional for us? It turns out that if you boil it all down, we actually remember what we pay attention to. And that's not just some loosey-goosey notion. It's an actual neurological, biological process. We need the neurological input of attention in order for us to form a lasting memory. So what we pay attention to, um, whether that's where did I put my glasses down, where did I put my car keys, or am I paying attention to the positive and the, the beautiful in the day, or am I paying attention to you know, the, what I lack and the negativity. Um, that's what you're going to remember. You remember what you pay attention to. In the movie, uh, Lisa, and again, it, it's not a piece of science. It's really a very artistic movie. Um, a lot of attention was paid to the relationship between forgetting memory and sleep. What do the researchers tell us? Uh, of course, we're always told that we need to sleep. And if you don't sleep enough, you're going to get sick, you're going to get unhappy. Is there a connection between sleep and memory? Yes, it's huge. And it's um, the, the science on this is very clear. And yes, you know, I'm, this isn't new for anyone, you know, sort of wagging, everyone's always wagging their finger at us that we need to get better sleep. And as a world, we're sleep deprived. And we sort of have this notion that if we're sleeping, we're being lazy and that, oh, I'll sleep when I'm dead, that saying. But the science is super clear, and I think it helps to understand why and what's going on. So the science tells us that our human brains need seven to nine hours a night of sleep in order for your memory to function properly today, for your brain health to function properly today, and to reduce your risk of developing Alzheimer's in the future. Here are three things that are happening in your brain while you're asleep. So you, it's, this isn't just an unconscious state of doing nothing, your brain and your body actually, but your brain is very biologically busy while you're asleep. And so all of the things that you paid attention to today, right? The things in your life that you, that happened or what you studied, maybe you're learning something new, maybe you're learning to play piano or a golf swing. Uh, maybe you're studying for a test. Maybe something happened today that you'd like to remember. So anything that you paid attention to that was meaningful, emotional, surprising, or new that you want to lock into a long-term memory, that happens while you're asleep. All of the sights, sounds, smells, feelings are bound together into a lasting memory by your hippocampus 
while you're asleep. So if you don't get enough sleep, your hippocampus might not have enough time to do its full job. And so you'll wake up the next day with those memories either not fully formed or not formed at all. The second thing that happens while you're asleep is your frontal lobe has a chance to, to sort of rest and, and re, rejuvenate. And so what that means is the next day you'll be able to pay attention, right? So if you've had a bad night's sleep, you all know you wake up the next day feeling groggy and oh, you know, someone's talking to you and you're like, I'm sorry, what? You weren't paying attention because you're so tired. Well, if I'm tired and I can't pay attention, what am I not going to be able to do? make new memories because the first essential ingredient in creating a memory that's gonna last longer than this moment is my attention. The third sort of, I think most critical thing that happens while we sleep has to do with preventing Alzheimer's. And so this is during slow wave deep sleep, our glial cells, this is like the sewage and sanitation department of your brain, the janitors, they get busy cleaning your brain and they're clearing away all the metabolic debris that accumulated while you were in the business of being awake. And one of the essential things that clears away is a protein called amyloid beta. Now, if amyloid beta is allowed to pile up over time, it forms plaques. And if too many form, too many plaques form, this is the beginning of Alzheimer's. And so every night that you can give yourself a good night's sleep, you're giving your sewage and sanitation department time to bring those, those amyloid levels down reducing sort of reducing your risk and prolonging the period of time in which that you might not get Alzheimer's. So we know this, we know this about sleep. It's good for your memory today. It's good for your memory tomorrow and being able to pay attention. And it's good for your long-term memory in terms of, of staving off Alzheimer's. Lisa, you gave a, a very, very popular TED talk on uh, staving us, staving off Alzheimer's. I think it's been viewed about 12 million times. Uh, we're all worried about that. I mean, it's it's one of the most prevalent diseases um, of the early 21st century. What kind of memory loss might suggest uh, the early onset of Alzheimer's? Yes, and this is the scary question that everyone's worried about, right? So it's like, you know, anytime, oh, I can't remember where I put my phone. Oh gosh, does that mean this is Alzheimer's? Oh, what's what's his name? Oh my gosh, I can't remember the his name. name. That, the movie, I... right? Oh, what's the name of that movie I saw or that someone recommended and you can't come up with the title? Oh God, does this mean I'm getting Alzheimer's? So where's the line? All right, let me give you a couple of examples that might help clarify this. So, okay, the stuff that goes missing. For 99% of us, Every time you can't find, like, where did I park my car? Oh my gosh, I, got, I went to the mall, I shopped for an hour, I come out to the parking garage and, oh my God, did I park on level three or level four? I, I can't remember. It's not, you actually never even involved your memory, I'm guessing. You didn't pay attention to where you parked. You were, you know, on the phone or not paying attention, thinking about something else and you zipped off without actually giving a present moment to where did I park this car? And so it's not a memory issue at all. It's, it's a distraction issue. It's a, an attention issue. If you have Alzheimer's and say it's early enough that you're still driving or say someone drove you, you get to the mall, you park in that garage, you off for an hour, you come back. It's not, oh, I can't remember if I parked on level three or level four. It's, I can't remember how I got here. Or you could be standing in front of your car and you don't recognize it as yours. You can't remember what your car looks like. 
So that's a distinction between normal forgetting and forgetting that is an early sign of Alzheimer's. The names thing. So for, again, 99% of us, and this is true for 25-year-olds as, as it is for 50-year-olds, it's going to be mostly proper nouns. It's going to be people's names, cities, places, movie titles, book titles. Those go missing. It's a normal glitch in memory retrieval. You can think of proper nouns as living in neurological cul-de-sacs. There's ultimately only one neural road in that's going to get you to the address you're looking for. So they're particularly tricky to reach. Whereas common nouns live on Main Street with hundreds of intersections in and out, easier to grab. So very normal to have that tip of the tongue. Oh, what's his name for everybody? That's not a sign of Alzheimer's. If you have trouble retrieving common nouns dozens of times a day, not just once in a while, it's like, oh, what's the name, the thing you write with? A pen? Yeah. If that's going on a lot, that's a sign of something. It doesn't have to be Alzheimer's, but it's something to be in conversation with your doctor about. It could be, you know, lack of sleep can cause memory issues. It could be B12 deficiency. It could be something that we can easily solve, but it's it, that's a sign of something not normal going on. Lisa, what about the role of technology in, if you like, outsourcing our memory? Uh, what I do uh, when I park my car, because I never remember anything, is I always take a, a photo on my iPhone so that I don't have to think about it. Do you think that's good or bad or irrelevant in terms of improving our memory, looking after our memory? We, of course, are also obsessed in the age of the iPhone with selfies. And we seem to remember everything we do now through uh, the photos we take on our phones. Uh, is the outsourcing of technology changing our memories? We don't remember each other's phone numbers anymore, ever. No. So this is a wonderful question. And there's a lot to unpack, to unpack here because there are nuances. So when you say we don't remember anyone's phone number anymore and I'm 51 and I can still tell you all of my childhood friends' phone numbers okay. when the, phones, yeah, when yeah. the yeah. phones were on the kitchen wall with the spiral cord. But it's not that we can't remember anyone's phone numbers anymore. We don't even try. So we're not involving our memory with the phone numbers. We're outsourcing the job. And this is okay. We're not, there's this, there's this myth out there that we're giving ourselves something called digital amnesia. And this is this is not true. It's a myth. We are augmenting our memory with devices, sort of like maybe we use you know glasses to see better. We are, um, you know, if you can't remember the name of the actor who played Alice and still Alice, and it's driving you nuts. Yes, I squeezed that in. Um, it is one hundred percent okay to Google it. So when you're having that tip of the tongue moment, it doesn't do your brain any good. It's not actually improving your memory to just perseverate on it and suffer through it and insist on coming up with it. You're actually in the wrong, what's happening is you, when you can't come up with it, you're in the wrong neural neighborhood. And to continue trying just means that you're spending energy in the wrong part of your brain. You're probably in some loosely related words neighborhood. If you just let go of it, this is why when you let go of it, it probably pops into your head later on, by the way, because you've stopped spending energy in the wrong neural neighborhood, giving the neurons in the right neighborhood a chance to be activated. But you don't improve your memory by coming up with it on your own. And you don't make your memory worse by looking it up. So you can Google all of your tip of the tongue words and you're okay. Um, what else? Oh, the fact that we do post to social media so much, kind of vain perhaps, but we have this amazing photo album 
with all kinds of geotags and and dates and and little captions underneath that tell us where we were and who we were with and it's nicely in chronological order in our hands because we're there on our phones and so we have this sort of wonderful photo album that we can refer to and again we remember what's meaningful emotional surprising new and what we repeat and practice so by revisiting our social media pages by revisiting pictures and captions of where we've been and what we've done these are our episodic memories we are repeating them we are reinforcing the neural pathways of those memories making those memories stronger so there's, I think it's it's that uh, I think that um, this digital age is actually helping us with memory. By the way, the, our memories for what you need to do later called prospective memory. So oh, I need to remember to buy milk, pick up the dry cleaning, um, attend my four o'clock Zoom meeting. All those things you need to do later. Human brains are terrible at this. No matter how smart you are, our brains are not designed to do something later. We forget all the time, unless the exact right cue is available at the exact right time, in the exact right place, we're gonna forget. This is why airline pilots don't rely on their brains and their terrible perspective memories to remember to lower the wheels of the plane before landing. They use a checklist, they outsource it. So for things that you need to do later, People say, oh, I'm always forgetting to do things later. I'm always forgetting to pick up the things I need to pick up. And they think there's something wrong with their brains. No, you have a human brain. You should write it down. Make a list, to-do list, checklist, put it in your calendar, use alerts and pillboxes. 100% okay. It does not mean you have a weakened memory or that you're worsening your memory or you're going to end up getting Alzheimer's. This is just good practice. Your book, Memory, Lisa, deals uh, in part with anecdotes from uh, people who have, who are who are masters, if you like, of the art of forgetting. Um, you write about Yo-Yo Ma, for example. We're all familiar with books like uh, Moonwalking with Einstein, which are books about how to remember. But perhaps a better book would be about being inspired for, by by the Yo-Yo Yo-Yo Ma's of the world about how to forget. Well, it's. It's part inspiration and part, I think, relief for people to know that it's okay, right? Because I think there's this expectation out there that memory is supposed to be perfect and that we're supposed to remember everything. And so that anytime we forget anything, we really go into a state of worry and stress. And, and stress is actually bad for our, our memory, um, both today and, and long-term. So we wanna try to you know, take that off our plate if we can. So yes, there's like the Yo-Yo Ma story is he, you know, had rehearsal and, you know, he's a world famous cellist and he had rehearsal and got into a New York cab and, and went, you know, a 20 blocks or so to the Peninsula Hotel, paid the fare, got out, left his $2.5 million cello in the trunk. He forgot his most prized possession. How could that happen? Well, it's because he forgot to do something later. The cue, the giant cello in the, in the cello case wasn't visible to him because it was in the trunk and so he forgot it so we're all susceptible to, to forgetting to do things that we plan to do later like oh have, you know have you ever signed up for a free 30-day trial of something or downloaded an app that was going to cost money and you thought well i'll rem if i don't like it i'll just remember to cancel it later and then what happens? You forget and because this is normal and you end up getting charged like, you know, $100 for the year. We forget what we plan to do later all the time and that's normal. So I think giving examples of people out there who do things in the world that are remarkable and extraordinary and they clearly have amazing brains 
even the most amazing brains forget. And that's a part of what allows us to, in fact, be good at what we do. Lisa, what about the issue of collective memory? Uh, the Queen died a few days ago. It seems to be one of these events that everyone now will remember where they were when they heard the Queen died. It's the same with the assassination of JFK, for example. But we did a show with uh, Colette Brooks. She has a new book out, Trapped in the Present Tense, which is about how we choose to remember or perhaps misremember the death of JFK. How do you distinguish between individual and collective memory? <clears throat> this is a fun question. So collective memory is also, also referred to as flashbulb memories. So it's this, and it's a misnomer because it's not photographic, but we, especially for public events that we share worldwide, there are these moments in history, moments in time that tend to be shocking, um, emotional. They feel personal to us um, where we remember where we were we were with, what time of day it was, what we were wearing, the weather. Um, and we talk about it, you know, as we talk about it with friends and family and it's on the news. And, and so we have these moments of memory, which are very vivid and specifically recalled. And it's unusual because if you asked me, you know, what happened the day before the queen died or what happened the day after or even a more recent memory or what happened say, you know, we just passed September 11th, right? And so we have memories of September 11th. And then, well, what happened on September 12th of that year? I couldn't tell you. Tell me what you ate for lunch three days ago. Tell me everything, everyone who texted you two days ago. I mean, we, we don't remember the details of our day-to-day -day life, but we have these very vivid memories of these collective, these flashbulb memories. Well, interestingly, they're not, just because they're vividly recalled and, and specifically recalled, doesn't mean they're accurate. So here's here's the study I love the most to sort of illustrate this. Um, the space shuttle Challenger that blew up in 1986. Um, Psychology 101 students were gathered at Emory College here in the United States, and they were asked a series of questions. Where were you? It was 24 hours after the explosion. Where were you? Who were you with? What time of day was it? How did you feel? They were brought back and given the exact same questionnaire two and a half years later. And these are young people, by the way, right? They're probably like 19, 20, 21 years old. So two and a half years later, they're brought back, given the same questions. Zero percent of them gave answers that 100% matched their original answers. And not only that, when shown their answers in their own handwriting, they couldn't make sense of it. They, the new version of the memory had replaced their original one. And let me explain why. There's a strange thing happens, a strange thing happens with respect to our, what are our episodic memories. These are our memories for what happened. All the stuff that happened is called your episodic memory. And unlike memory for facts and information, that's called your semantic memory, this memory can change over time with retelling. So every time we revisit a memory for something that happened, it's vulnerable to editing. We can leave pieces of information out. We can add pieces of information in. And so with these, and then it's restored over, it overwrites the original. It's like hitting save in Microsoft Word. So what does all that mean? That means that if we have a collective memory, if we have these memories, these flashbulb moments, like JFK being killed or the queen died, 
we tend to talk about these a lot or you know september 11th just happened the news reports we play it oh we revisit that memory and maybe some new information is learned about it or maybe somebody has something to say about it and we agree with it or maybe it's been 30 years and our perspective on life has changed a little and we we remember it a little differently with these sort of older wiser eyes and so we'll tell the story a little differently and with each retelling it's sort of like the telephone game you can drift a little further and further away from what you originally experienced it's not that we're lying it's that the memory gets restored in this new version and it can drift over time so our collective memories you know how we felt about how we feel about who was there and what we were wearing and it, we can't be totally confident in it you wear a number of hats, if that's the right metaphor, uh, Lisa, mother, uh, university academic, neuroscientist, and best-selling writer, uh, both fiction and non-fiction. Do you think writers have different kinds of memories? And when it comes to the architecture of one's memory, um, if you were able to study writers versus scientists versus uh, accountants versus factory workers, would they come out with different kinds of memories? Don't, I don't necessarily think so. I think again, so memory is, you know, it's a function of what we pay attention to and it's a function of what we care about. And so I think that, you know, interestingly, if, if you look at the certain, certain parts of the brain, right? So a memory, you don't have a memory bank. There's no one part of your brain where we can find a memory. Memory is found in the, the neural circuitry. It's the linked connections between vision and hearing and, and feeling is and palace movement. a good metaphor is that? Well, we can, that's a little separate, but let, let me like, if I were, if I were um, a virtuoso pianist, right? Say I'm like a world-class pianist the amount of brain real estate that is de that is devoted to the memorization of tens of thousands of musical notes to play Chopin and Mozart is going to be different than the memory of a novice pianist or someone who doesn't play piano at all right so if i'm a if i'm an expert if i'm a if i'm serena williams and i'm you know a, a pro tennis player there are parts of my brain that are devoted to the memorization of the procedure for, for hitting a tennis ball under any condition that is going to be different from my brain. I can barely play tennis at all. So yes, I think the question you're getting to is, are, do we have, is the memory in my brain different than the memory in your brain? And it will be depending on what we do with those brains. Yes. So how I'm exercising my memory system every day is going to change my brain, right? So my brain is gonna be different every time I learn something new because that's a new memory and it has to change my brain. That lasting memory is a lasting physical alteration in my brain. And so my brain will be different every time I remember something new that can be recalled later. So yes, writers will have different memories than accountants. Um, it doesn't necessarily mean they're better or worse. We've just paid attention to different things and we're good at remembering those kinds of things. Lisa, your book, uh, you mentioned Still Alice, it sold many millions of copies. Uh, you, you, your story is remarkable. You self-published self, uh, Still Alice and then it became a huge hit. You've written a number of other best-selling uh, novels. Uh, what advice would you give aspiring novelists about remembering and forgetting? 
Um, about remembering and forgetting. I mean, it's my advice to them is the same as probably every human, which is that I tell people that with respect to memory, you want to take it seriously, but hold it lightly. So it's this idea that our memory is an amazing, miraculous superpower. I mean, we can at any age learn new things. Like we can, we can memorize. So Akira Haraguchi, who was a retired engineer in Japan at age 69, decided he wanted to memorize pi, a non-repeating patternless number out to as many digits as he could. And he memorized 111,000 some odd digits of pi. Mm -hmm. um, but th like that like aside, at any age, we can learn a new language. We could learn to play piano. We could learn to play tennis. This is me new memories that we can at any age. Amazing. At the same time, it's highly fallible and inaccurate with respect to what happened yesterday, people's names, um, if I don't have your full attention. So it it's both this amazing thing and it's a highly fallible thing. And so, you know, take we want to take good care of it, I would say, to writers or anyone. You know, you want to get enough sleep. Don't pull all-nighters. You're not doing your brain any favors with that. You want to eat a heart and brain healthy diet of food, exercise every day, uh, balance in, in all things, truly manage your reactivity to stress um, and then let it go. The things that we can't remember, unless you think it's a sign of an actual sign of, of something going wrong and in disease, forgetting is a normal part of being human. Um, and so you can outsource things um, and you don't have to, life is an open book test now with, with Google folks. So you can look things up too. Lisa, what's it like to have gone from being a best-selling novelist to now a best-selling non-fiction writer? Um, it 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 feels a little different. It's true. Um, I writing was the non-fiction book was much different than the fictional stories. It it felt more like an academic homework assignment, whereas yeah. writing novels has much more freedom to play. Um, but it's, it's been, it's a similar kind of rewarding. I, my intention in writing the book, the nonfiction book is similar to my intention with writing the fictional stories, which is for this one, it was, there's a lot of fear out there that people have with respect to their brains and their memory. There are people who are living every day who actually have healthy brains who are afraid of their own brain or afraid of their, their moments of forgetting. And so I wrote this book to try to offer a conversational way of relating to you to help you feel like I understand those moments. I live them too. And here's why they're normal and that you don't have to be afraid of your memory, that you can have a better relationship with your memory, to have educated expectations of it and to know how to work and dance with it. Um, and so that's similar to my novels. It's I'm trying to help people have a sense of what it's like to walk in someone else's shoes, what it's like to have a brain that might work a little differently um, and to, to generate some empathy and compassion um, for, you know, people have a lot of fear with about anything from the neck up, right? So if anybody has anything going on for, in your brain, so whether it's mental illness, a neurodegenerative disease, a brain condition, a traumatic brain injury, um, if you're acting weird in some way, and I think it's brain related, I get uncomfortable really fast. And the quickest way to relieve my discomfort is to look away. And so I write these books to help people not look away, um, to, to generate some empathy. Well, Lisa, I really hope the one thing you're not gonna remember, uh, sorry, 
That was a Freudian. <laughs> the one thing you're not going to forget is that you are going to be in Miami at their book fair somewhere yes. between November the 13th and 20th. This conversation is coming because of our friends at the Miami Book Fair, lots of other wonderful writers, including Javier Zamora, who's already been on the show, Stacey Shift, who's gonna be on, and many others. Uh, you're gonna go to Miami, uh, uh, Lisa? Oh yeah, I'll be there. And uh, you're gonna have some fun. I hope you have some fun meeting your uh, meeting all your readers, uh, schmoozing with other writers. Yeah. Oh, it's going to be so good. We've, you know, we've been online and over Zoom for so long. And I live in Massachusetts, going to Miami in November. Can't wait. 